Mistaken identities, world travelers, mystery in the Middle East, secrets told, murder plots, kidnappings, and more, all in The Man Who Knew Too Much. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. And today, we have a special guest with us, Bill Koenig. Bill caught the spy bug early, beginning with the first season of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. During the second season of that show, he caught the Bond bug when The Incredible World of James Bond aired in the place of U.N.C.L.E. in November. Ahead of Thunderball's debut, he was a contributor to the website Her Majesty's Secret Service from 1997 to 2014. He also worked on Her Majesty's Secret Service weblog, now called The Spy Command, which first went on air in 2008. He was that blog's primary contributor and eventually took the blog over. Essentially, Bill's a child of the 1960s spy craze. He shows up on podcasts now and then, like now was recently one of the key questioning panelists in Stephen J. Rubin's 007 International Trivia Marathon that we held and hosted October 2nd. And we're happy to have him here. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Met you guys at the uh, at that trivia contest, and yeah. uh, we had a good time. Yeah, always a great time. So thanks. We're primarily examining the 1956 version of this movie, yeah. but we will mention the 1934 version as well. Both were directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and Hitchcock said, the first version is the work of a talented amateur. The second was made by a professional. <laughs> That's good. Since we'll be referencing both the 1934 and the 1956 versions of The Man Who Knew Too Much, as Tom mentioned, this podcast will be a bit longer, but worth it. Quickly, the main character cast in each is, in the 1956, Jimmy Stewart as Dr. Benjamin McKenna, Doris Day as Joe Conway McKenna, Christopher Olsen as Hank McKenna, and Reggie Nodler as the assassin. In the 1934 version, we got Leslie Banks as Bob Lawrence, Edna Best as Jill Lawrence, that's the couple, and Nova Pilbeam as Betty Lawrence, their daughter, while Frank Vosper is Ramon Levine, the assassin. All right, those are the main players in each. Now, Bill, we're doing this podcast at your suggestion. What is it about these two movies that you like? Uh, this is a very classic Hitchcock theme of an innocent, or in this case, an innocent couple, getting caught up in intrigue and espionage. And, and it's something that Hitchcock returned to multiple times, North by Northwest yeah. in particular was, was was like that. And, you know, clearly in the 56 version, it's Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart is just knocked off his... Uh, uh, knocked off his center. Basically he's dealing with stuff. He's just never had to deal with. And it's kind of funny in watching it again recently. Uh, his wife played by Doris day is kind of onto things a little before he is. I mean, he's a little <laughs> too sure of himself and she's like, you told him all this stuff and all this stuff. Oh, you know, don't worry about that dear. Um, but <laughs> well, yeah, she, it was like, it was like, I don't even know if this is politically allowed today, but she had that woman's intuition. That something yeah. was wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, she did. She definitely was ahead of him. You're right, Bill. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and you stop thinking about it. She was a famous singer. And so she, I mean, people in show business have to deal with sort of hangers on or at least people trying to get some out of them. So her, her life experience might have actually prepared her better for what was about to unfold than, than Jimmy Stewart's did as, you know, the, you know, right. surgeon at the Indianapolis hospital. Yeah, yeah. Interesting in the 34 version, too, really, 
she's the first one who knows kind of what's going on. So there is a little connection here again as they jump from 34 to 56. So cool stuff. Well, Tom, you mentioned the 1934 movie and uh, Charles Bennett co-authored the story that both movies are based off of. And he was co-scriptor for the 1954 Casino Royale CBS adaptation. It, the first time we saw James Bond uh, television. on television. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And, and he also penned the night of the eccentrics, which was the first episode of the second season of the wild, wild west, hmm. which would have aired in the fall of 1966. And um, he also co-wrote the 1961 voyage to the bottom of the sea movie wow. with Irwin Allen. And, um, and, and that uh, Wild Wild West episode, they already had Dr. Loveless in place in the first season. They wanted to have like another arch villain. And so that script introduced uh, Count Manzeppi played by Victor Buono. And one of his henchmen was uh, played by Richard Pryor. Um, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah. I got to catch that episode seeing Richard Pryor as a yeah. henchman. Oh, my God. But as it, as it turned out, there were only two Count Manzeppi episodes made, but, uh, Anyway, but yeah, and Bennett was born, I looked it up, I believe he was born in like 1899, so a man of the 19th century. Wow. But uh, yeah, he, he's, you know, he was active for a long time as a writer. That's cool. I also love how all of these different people have been involved in a bunch of different espionage movies and different you know, franchises almost. You've got Casino Royale here, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the Hitchcock espionage stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of nice to see that, these guys, they, they do different genres of, of the spy movies, the different flavors of them, but they, it's one big, almost incestuous family, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. Now, Bill, you mentioned, the, or Tom, you mentioned the Hitchcock quote, but you know what? The 1934 version, really, I look I look at that movie, and I there's a lot of stuff I like in the 1934 version better than I do in the 1956 version. So even though Hitchcock said that, hey, amateur versus a professional, it's pretty. It's a pretty darn good movie, the 34 movie. And uh, screenwriter John Michael Hayes for the 56 version said that he had completed only the first few scenes of the movie <laughs> by the time that the cast and crew were leaving for the overseas shooting. So he wrote, he, and he said something like he wrote several pages a day and they were flown over to the cast and the crew. I, I, I you know, that part is pretty amazing for the 56 version, I have to say. It's like, no, and it's, I was about to say, and keep in mind for the 34 version, okay, you know, the sound ear in Hollywood was only underway for five years. I mean, yeah. the 56 movie is technically better in a lot of ways because simply oh, there had been more development yes. of cameras and sound and so forth. But the 34 version, it occurred at a time when things were still fairly primitive in the, in the sound era. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the story. I, I, I think the storyline is very solid in the 34 version. So, all right. Yeah, I agree. I'd agree with that. Right. Now you, you mentioned that they had to write these yeah, the right. pages on the fly on. here as they were filming. <laughs> Yeah. And that's often a bad omen. I mean, think about <laughs> Quantum of Solace. Okay. Right? They didn't have a script when they started filming that movie, which I, it blows my mind that you would start filming without knowing where you're going. Also, you know, that's not the worst Bond movie ever, but it's not in my top 10. And I think part of it was because the script wasn't done. Yeah. Well, also, just imagine the cost of that. Like, Flying I mean, you didn't, you, you, yeah, you didn't have FedEx in those days. Like, how much did it cost, uh, you know, for 
John Michael Hayes to mail off like, you know, six pages or whatever he did at the time. Yeah, yeah flying yeah. it over. But, you know, they didn't have email would come in handy there. Yeah, really? A <laughs> <laughs> little different now. Yeah, pretty wild. All right, we see once again that innocent people are dragged into an international spy caper, as we saw in Hitchcock's The 39 Steps, which was 1935, and North by Northwest, which is 1959. So we're going to see that again here. And But I have to say, that setup is pretty exciting, and it draws the average person right into the chaos immediately. So that's kind of cool. I like well, that. And- yeah, well, one of the things about that that's so nice is it's the average person that turns into kind of a spy. Yeah, yeah I like right? that. It's not, it's not the typical spy person, but there's a spy organization involved here. Right. But also, the man who knew too much came out a year earlier than the 39 Steps. That's true. So the 39 Steps was borrowing this whole innocent people pulled into a spy caper idea right. from this movie which is kind of interesting because of the way we've talked about that whole 39 steps kind of being the start of that. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It was superseded here. Yeah. Well, I was about to say also, uh, so, so in other words, the 34 version of this film basically helped establish a template that Hitchcock would go back to multiple times. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's successful. Yeah. We know what's going on and we're still drawn in I mean, every time. I love yeah. it. In stark contrast in the 1934 version, this 56 version starts in Marrakesh, Morocco, versus the Grisalp in the Swiss Alps. So we have a totally different setting from the heat of the desert to the snow in the Swiss Alps. So completely different scenarios in the storyline. Similar elements in the storyline, of course, but completely different settings, which is kind of neat. I kind of like the 34 version again in the Swiss Alps where there's all this stuff going on and we'll talk about some of that, but yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's almost as if when he did the 56 version, Hitchcock wanted to go out of his way to uh, draw a difference with the 34. So, I mean, like the, yeah. you know, there's, it's harder to get <laughs> climate change compared to the, you know, Swiss Alps to uh, yeah. Marrakesh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty substantial. <laughs> and I love the whole, the whole snow scene in the beginning of the, of the 1934 version where there's all this winter kind of activities and competitions going on. And the lead in that one, Jill is a skeet shooter and she's in a skeet shooting contest. So there's a lot of cool things in there on all the snows around the cold freezing versus the desert. I love it. It's a great contrast. And I think uh, what we saw in the spy who loved me, of course we have an opening scene with, yep snow and skis and well and uh for your eyes only had uh, that sequence in italy where it snowed and you had the one guy who was i forget the name of the sport where you ski and then you stop and shoot your you know targets and stuff yeah yeah, biathlon yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and of course the guy turns out to be a soviet agent but uh yeah yeah, that that's another case of using i guess it was the italian alps but uh you, you know of using that kind of location yeah to enhance what's going on. Yeah. Well, actually, actually one one thing about that too, is in the, in the 1934 version, it shows Jill as a very competent woman doing the shooting and everything kind of being the, the celeb in the, in the relationship just, and they changed what the celebrity was in the 56 version with Doris Day, but it still was, we had the competent mother who had another career, had other activities. She appears to be the more competent one. Yes, yes. Again, I think because of that celebrity in both versions, 
the mother has some life experiences that the husband doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that come and and it's like, you know, she has a more of a sense of danger or a sense of the intrigue that's happening around it, even if she doesn't know the precise details. She she just catches on quicker than her husband does in both movies. Yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. So in this 56 version, we open up with an orchestra playing, which is going to be an important part of the entire story later, of course, as we know. And Dr. Benjamin, his wife, Joe, and their son, Hank, the McKenna family, are sitting on the back of a bus on the way to Marrakesh from Casablanca. Kind of neat. So that whole rear projection stuff on the bus thing was a little weak. <laughs> well, but, you know, I, I, Hitchcock was just fond of that. And it's like, yes, it's a different era. I get that. But I, I, I think in general, Hitchcock kind of preferred the uh, comfort of the studio because, I mean, you see in various movies, for example, two people are like walking and it's like they're walking with rear projection behind them yeah. uh, and in, in a lot of different Hitchcock movies. I, I just think it was... Hitchcock was kind of a creature of habit, and that was one of his habits. Yeah. But in this film, they did go to Morocco and, and yeah. London, and so they were on location at these places, so it was kind of cool. But that, that part of the bus was kind of weird. Anyway, on the bus, uh, an incident happens, and Hank, uh, the kid, he walks up the aisle, and the bus is lurching left and right and back and forth, and, and he reaches to grab something to hold on so it wouldn't fall over, and he grabs a face covering on a Muslim woman, and now her face is exposed. And an angry husband stands up, and he's yelling at Hank, who's still holding the face covering of the woman in his hand. Now, a gentleman stands up to defend Hank, and he speaks Arabic to the angry husband and hands back the face covering, and the angry man calms down. The gentleman introduces himself to the McKenna's, and Ben thanks him for his help. He's Louis Bernard, and he explains to the McKenna's that the Muslim religion allows for few accidents. Muslim women never take off their veil in public under any circumstance. Whoa. So that's where we first learn a little bit here. And also this becomes Hitchcock's way of educating not only his characters, but uh, educating us, the audience. Yeah. And he surmised correctly that, you know, the vast bulk of the American audience would not know about this kind of detail about, you know, Arabic culture. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's pretty slick actually the way he does it because it, it doesn't seem forced, you know, it doesn't seem like Basil exposition. It comes out in sort of a measured way and, and, you know, cause there's quite a bit of it over multiple scenes, but there's like never too much at any one moment. It's, it's a nice flow that yeah. way. Yeah, it is. I like it a lot. I think that was a, a great mechanism to enlighten us just like the early bond movies traveling all over the world where most people didn't travel all over the world you're seeing all these new things for the first time through the films here you're learning something new also in this movie Got well me. in the bond movies they didn't do that much of the customs stuff and i think here in this movie they do more of that exposing you to the customs yeah. and how they, how, how they work and for me, I really like it. And since I love to travel, it's really nice to have some of these tips. And so I, those customs would be would have been foreign to me. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really nice to be able to pick those up from the movie. Right. So let's go on. So there's some questioning by Bernard. 
And he's asking Ben these questions. Yeah. And it seems, you know, fairly innocent conversation. You're traveling, you bump into somebody, you just help them out. You're going to have a conversation with them. Yeah. And we find out that Ben's a doctor from Indianapolis, Indiana. They were in London for a convention. So he thought it'd be nice to see Morocco. He was stationed in Casablanca during the war. And so we're getting background on Ben, or more importantly, Louis Bernard is getting background on Ben. We don't realize it at the time that that's what's happening, right. but that's really what's happening. Yeah, I think he was right. in Paris for and the then, convention. And then that's what prompts Joe, his wife, to say, do you realize you told Louis <laughs> Bernard your whole life story? Uh, that's not the exact line. But, you know, it's, right. and again, showing that she's a little more yeah, yeah. wary about Louis Bernard than, than Ben was. Yeah, yep. exactly. I think he was in Paris for the convention, though, was he? I think so. so but uh, that's true. So there she is, again, ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah, you're right. They were in Paris, sorry. Yeah, and realizing that, boy, he just told his whole story, and then she says, what do we know about him? Nothing. <laughs> that's, that's the best line in there. It's like, you spilled your your guts out to him, and you, we know nothing about this guy. So she, her intuition was good there. All right. Well, and it's not like she didn't try to get stuff out of him. Right. She asked him right. specifically. They had, like, invited him up for a drink, and Joe was like trying to find out, okay, what do you do for a living, Mr. Bernard? Yeah, and he's he just he's ducking and weaving. Right. Uh, yeah. Which so is I, interesting because Bond always had a, at least a cover story where Louis didn't really have a cover story. It was right. Kind of, right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Bond could at least say, Oh, I work for universal exports yes. uh, yeah. or, or whatever else they came yeah. up with. But yeah, Louis Bernard, I'm just a guy. I'm traveling. Yeah, yeah. And first, <laughs> he ignores her first question about what you do yes. when, when they're right there and they get off the bus, I think. And then later we'll see that he ignores it again. <laughs> yeah, um, we also have uh, this thing with the horse-drawn carriage with the McKennas. Right. Yeah. And uh, which is kind of similar to uh, Bond and Triple X taking the carriage in Sardinia and the Spy Who Loved Me. And yeah. also, in, in terms of a snow-covered uh, locale, Bond and Molina and For yeah. Your Eyes Only, both both cases, you know, horse-drawn, open air, gives him some atmosphere. Again, for a guy who, who liked to stick to the studio a lot, there's enough actual location stuff to, you know, to give you a flavor. Yes, they were there. Maybe not as much as we're used to today. You know, some of those interiors would be done, right. you know, on location rather than in studio. Mm-hmm. But it is atmospheric, and it does, it very much gives you an idea of mid-50s North Africa. Oh, that's true. Now, the other part about that with the horse-drawn carriage and the comparisons you just made to the Bond stuff is that in this case, it was the kid, Hank, who wanted yeah. that, that wagon. Yeah, he wanted right? to go. So the in, in the first two movies they that you mentioned, they almost, the, the Bond movies, they almost had it romantic almost. At, yeah, yeah. At that point, we were here, this was just, hey, the kid wants to get, go on the wagon. Yeah. So it had a different feel there, but it's also the the carriage, the horse-drawn carriage comes into play in both movies. In the 34 movie, Betty is taken by the kidnappers in a horse-drawn sleigh. Yeah. So contrasting the 56 and the 34 here, Hank really wanted to be on that wagon, and Betty definitely did not. All right, so they're in Marrakesh, built the horse-drawn wagon there, and really we're, we're drawn into this intrigue quickly because she suspects something about Bernard, like you were saying, Bill, and we don't know exactly what's happening. We don't know who he is, but we're drawn into this thing. And he, again, he ignored her when, when he asked, literally just ignored the question when he asked, when she asked what business he was in. 
and now it's like, okay, all right. So we got this tr intrigue immediately created for us. Of course, Bernard ignored the question when she asked him what you do for a living, like you said there, Bill. And so we have this issue going on. It's like, well, okay, who is this guy and what does he do? Now, as they're getting into the horse-drawn carriage that we were talking about, she sees Louis Bernard talking to the actual man who was angry on the bus. So now she's suspicious even more now of Louis Bernard. It's like, oh, man, now who is this guy? He asks all the stuff about us. He's talking to that guy like he knows him. Hmm, kind of weird. So she says in the carriage that, hey, you know what that means? That means Mr. Bernard is a very mysterious man. <laughs> and again, all the stuff he knows about them, they don't know anything about him. And you know, I, I like the Jimmy Stewart's line there. He said, hey, I have nothing to hide. So that's, a, that's his explanation. I'm just talking, just a normal conversation. And she says about Mr. Bernard, but I have a feeling Mr. Bernard does <laughs> have something to hide. <laughs> <laughs> well, like... you know, what I love about all of that is if you're traveling, and you have an incident like that on a bus and yeah. your kid gets uh, confronted by this guy. Everything Ben did, I could totally see somebody doing. Yeah. And that's the intrigue about this. The, the espionage world is if it was a setup, which it looks like it might have been, yeah. Ben acted normal, right? Yeah. And, and from Ben's perspective, Louis Bernard got him out of a jam. Yeah. At least it, it appeared that way because... You're on a crowded bus. It's it's loud, and this guy's yelling, and Warm everyone's country. upset. Yeah. And and this is all new to you. So that was a way of Louis Bernard putting Ben at ease, and then setting him up to get more information. Yeah, and as a viewer, we're worth looking at that and thinking that, but we don't know again what he's up to, and we find out really that well, that was good for him to know because he needed <laughs> to know all that stuff. Yeah. All right, so they get to their hotel, and the hotel's a beautiful hotel. And uh, and it was really one of the top hotels in, in the world at the time. And there's another couple that's getting in the carriage or walking past them and kind of looks at them. And Joe says she thinks they're being watched. <laughs> She's suspicious again. <laughs> so is she just paranoid, or, or is she right here? So that evening we see, because uh, they invited Bernard to their room for a cocktail, that Bernard is having a drink with them in their room. And Joe, who's this professional singer, as we know in the movie, she starts singing K Sera Sera, whatever will be, will be. Well, it's a very important song for the story. They wrote for the movie. song for this movie. Yeah. Because they had Doris Day in it. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah. She was a well known singer. They thought they needed to give her a song. Yeah. And they did a great job, not with just the lyrics, but also integrating the singing into the story. You know, in a lot of musicals, it's kind of like, oh, it's time for the song. Yeah. Here, this was, it was, it felt natural again, just like Ben's conversation. It felt natural that she'd be in the room singing with her kid. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was very, very well done how they handled it. And it's really important to the plot of the movie at the end. Yeah. 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 Like you're and, saying. And, yeah. They had, uh, and that songwriting team, Evans and Livingstone, were very prolific. I, they wrote. I believe they wrote Silver Bells. They wrote wow. uh, the theme song to Bonanza. They Jeez. wrote the they wrote the theme song to Mr. Ed. One of them sang <laughs> it. I don't remember which one off the top of my head. And in 1967, there was a Peter Gunn theatrical movie. And of course, the theme to Peter Gunn was originally written by Henry Mancini, but they were brought in to turn it into a song, which was in the end title. So, and like they had a very long career and again, very prolific. And, and the other thing, of course, is that 
this was never a favorite song of Doris Day's, but it ended up sticking with her. And so when she had a TV show from 68 to 73, that was the themes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. She didn't like it, but made, it made her a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in, in, the, in the movie, like you said, Tom, it really is meaningful to the movie because case the rest are out, whatever will be, will be. It really is intriguing because it is integrated into the story of the movie. Whatever will be, will be. The future is not ours to see. Okay, sera, sera. So they really do not know what the future will be for them in this adventure. So this is a great song for that purpose. I love yeah, it. Yeah, now one other thing that you've got to catch here is that Hank whistles to the song, right? Yes. In the room. And it's pretty obvious he's actually not doing the whistling. But... Um, <laughs> It's hard to whistle, especially when you're a kid like that. But, uh, you know, he's he's given it his all. And I like the way they set up, again, what happens later in the movie, both with this song and Hank whistling to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's important. Again, it's integrated into the movie uh, very well. And, and just real quick, too, the professional abilities of both heroines of the two versions come into play mm-hmm. in the climax. So yes. We'll, yes. We'll, get, we'll get to more about that later, but uh, yeah. Yeah, each uses their skill to really resolve the issues in both movies, which is great. So in the room, she's singing and all this stuff, like we said. Bernard thinks she sings beautifully. And it comes out that she was on the American stage as well as the London stage and Paris stage. And it also comes out that Bernard was born in Paris. So we have a little more intrigue. And once here in the room, Joe asks Bernard what business he's in. And he says he buys and sells. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So Joe Joe doesn't give up, though. She's tough. She's like, you buy and sell what? (laughs) Which would be normal, right? And he says, whatever brings the most profit. I mean, okay, now we and everybody has to realize uh, this guy is hiding something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, it, <laughs> it, no it, idea it remind, who he is. That reminded me of when I was in Greece and I was at a pool at the hotel and I ran into a guy and I'm asking him what he does. And he just came back with textiles. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this buys and sells reminds me of that. You should have been suspicious you know, well, of that guy. <laughs> you have no idea where to take the conversation when he just says textiles. And Joe still, Joe still doesn't give up here. She said, right. "Okay, you're in Marrakesh. What are you buying and selling?" <laughs> well, <laughs> I love and, it. And also, just a real quick historical note: modern audiences may not appreciate this aspect. But, I mean, the French were a colonial power in North Africa, Algeria mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah, right. And so it was not unheard of for a, a French guy to be roaming around North Africa on business. So, I mean, that's something that probably audiences at the time got. But, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, people yeah. who see it today for the first time might not appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. But he still, Bernard, is not going to tell her. He said, yeah. oh, I, I'd much rather talk about the stage. <laughs> Yes, yes. You, yes. You know, basically. So we got more intrigue here. There's a knock at the door, though, and this is good. This guy asked for Mr. Montgomery, the guy who's at the door, and he looks like this tall, lanky, seedy-looking guy. And he sees Bernard, and Bernard sees him, and they obviously know or recognize each other by the expressions on their face. So something's up. Of course, it's the wrong room and blah, blah, blah. And the man at the door just says, okay, well, sorry, and he leaves. So it's a very important role, though, this guy at the door. we got to remember that face because we're going to see that face again. And Bernard 
looks worried. You can see his face. They make it obvious to us that Bernard is concerned here. And he has to use the phone. And then he says, hey, I can't have dinner with him, with the McKenna's tonight. He's got to leave. He's got something he has to take care of. So this is really kind of just like the 1934 version where Abbott and the skier exchange these stern glances like they know each other. So it is the same kind of thing. And that skier was Louis Bernard. So it, it is very, very similar because you've got the, there's a recognition between the equivalent the, of Louis. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Both, both movies have a character named Louis Bernard, which yeah. was not the case with like the, the lead couple and so forth that those names got changed. But, right, right. and then we also, you know, this one guy, this mysterious kind of, pockmarked face and you know that is uh, Reggie Nodler and uh, you know he was regularly employed he was in fact had a small role in uh, the Bow Wow Affair which was the first Ilya Kirakin centric episode on the man from uncle Oh, okay. Okay. I think he was also in uh, this wasn't spy but thriller which was this uh, anthology show hosted by Boris Karloff so yeah, I mean he you know he made the rounds and it's you know he's so distinctive looking you can yes. you can see why. Yeah, you you pick him up and again scary. this is more this whole cross spy movie thing and we, with you know the movies and TV yeah. using the same people in different plot lines, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he looks scary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so the next we end up with Hank getting they have a sitter for Hank at the hotel and Ben and Joe go to dinner. And this scene is an important scene, but it's also a comic relief scene. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got the 6'3", Jimmy Stewart. He's tall, lanky, thin, kind of not, you know, he's not a Fred Astaire moving kind of guy. And he has to sit on these low cushion couches. <laughs> That's a and great he's got scene. this low table. And he squirms in there trying to get comfortable. It's funny the way they do it. But again, another, you could totally see that happening because the guy's just so tall yeah, yeah. and the, the sitting so 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 low, and then at the restaurant we see that couple who they saw outside the hotel, who Joe thought was watching, watching them. them. Yeah, yeah. Now the, the they have a conversation and their backs are to each other. And my guess is that this lady heard them having this conversation where she's like, "Oh, those were those people," and she turns around and she recognizes her as Joe Conway, mm-hmm. and so they end up sitting together. We find out they're from England, so again we're getting information about the people here. And then meanwhile, they see Bernard enters the restaurant with a woman. Mm, and yeah. Ben gets really mad yeah, about yeah. Bernard was supposed to go to dinner, to take them to dinner. Yeah. He stood them up and then he walks into the restaurant with this lady. So we see Ben's got a temper. He, <laughs> he also, does. As, as he's doing that. And then there's another part of this where, you know, the, the low seating and everything is part of the, the, the restaurant. But then he doesn't like the tradition that he learns of eating with two fingers while keeping your left hand on your lap. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Two fingers and a thumb, right? Well, eating with your left hand on your lap. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? And and also it's amusing that the couple end up doing the same thing Louis Bernard did earlier because they're winning over the confidence, except this time Joe's a little, she's a little more accepting, I guess, of, of the couple than, she was of Louis Bernard, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's the same thing happening all over again. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of neat. Like you're saying, Tom, with him looking uncomfortable on the seats and then 
they're talking back to back and he's turning around and Jimmy Stewart's face is like perfect when he's like cranking his neck and you could see, Oh, the pain in his neck. And he wants everybody to get together to join and, and not be back to back like that, but you know, go to the same table together. So everything worked the way the couple wanted it to work. And Jimmy Stewart facilitated it <laughs> by, yes. yeah. by doing that. And it, it's like, okay, that's really clever. That's good. And yeah. look natural. It's perfect. Well, well, also Jimmy Stewart was kind of Hitchcock's go-to guy. Yeah. When he when he wanted a sort of everyman. I mean, he you know in the fifties Hitchcock seemed to have two main two preferred leading men. One was Cary Grant when he needed someone's kind of suave, and like Jimmy Stewart when he wanted the everyman. And yeah. this story calls for an everyman. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's perfect in this role. He's just terrific, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And with the whole way that he's instructed how to eat with just the, <laughs> the two fingers and the thumb and he there's 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 comedy built there. But again, that's bringing back the local customs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the, the Muslim customs. And so it's really nice how Hitchcock does that in this movie. Again, not preaching with you. And in fact, at one point, Ben uses two hands and the waiter <laughs> scolds him. Yeah, he's so frustrated. He's like, I don't know this. When I watch this movie again, that scene, okay, this is a total detour, but it reminded me of Lee Trevino's role in the movie Happy Gilmore. It's like, I'm scolding you. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So, again, but I I really like the way they, they did that here. Yeah, yeah. It was great. And you could see his temper and you could see his frustration with everything, the whole thing. Louis Bernard over there, the food customs and the way you have to eat. He's like, hey, if you got four good fingers on a thumb, well, you know, why can't you use them? You know, like, okay. Yeah. Right, the ugly American. Stuff. Yeah. Right? right. He was the ugly American yes. in that movie, really. And yeah. so this couple that they're eating with, they invite Ben and Joe to go with them to the market the next day. And Hank is going to go too. And there's a lot going on. So they do. They go to the market with them the next day. It's very crowded. And again, I think that was shot on location, which was pretty neat. And there's all kinds of things going on. And Hank is with the people from London who are the Drayton's. He's yeah. Now also, this scene is, you know, since Hitchcock puts himself into his movies, yeah. this scene is where his cameo is, you know, in, in, in this one. We also get a glimpse of Joe's maternal instinct in this one. So it's, it's, you know, she's trying to protect Hank here. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And then, and then we get more intrigue, of course, because the police are chasing after somebody in the market Yeah, and a chase scene. Oh, (laughs) can't imagine that. But um, anyway, but things are getting knocked over and this will be a a fixture in many spy movies after this, but uh, and no cars anyway. were destroyed in the making of this, right? Because <laughs> yeah, it's because it's a foot chase. Although the animals yeah. part, though, Doris, they really disliked the, that the animals were so skinny and underfed, and the and the people, you know, they were rich or poor or whatever. And she made sure that all the animals that were in the movie actually were fed. They had feeding stations for all the animals. And, and she said at the end that, hey, I was happy that I pl- kind of plumped them up or whatever she said, <laughs> you know, that she, she fed the animals. Anyway, so like you're saying, Bill, uh, there's this chase going on. And then someone pops out and stabs the man being chased. And then he disappears. And the stab man somehow eludes the police, <laughs> eludes the police for a moment or so and stumbles into the market square w- with a knife in his back right where Ben and Joe are standing and Ben. How convenient. <laughs> yeah. 
And Ben, and, you know, I, I love the faces on the people behind him looking at the knife. Like, oh, guy's got a knife in his back. <laughs> They're not doing anything about it, whatever. It's like th- that moment. There's like five seconds of it. And you think, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah like, he's, okay. he's, he, he keeps reaching behind him to try and get the knife out. Yeah. No one helps. And he can't yeah. reach it. Yeah, they're just looking at it going, okay. So Ben goes over to him, and it's Louis Bernard with dark makeup on that smears off onto Ben's hands. I guess that was his, he was disguising himself maybe as being one of the locals or whatever. But so now, if they did that today, can you imagine the press? Oh, oh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah, you'd probably have a few comments. They yeah. wouldn't do it, <laughs> but it worked well. It worked well in this scene. So. Yeah, yeah, right. And there, there's one key shot where you see the side of Ben's hand, and you see Louis Bernard slide, and that's what causes the makeup to come off onto Ben's fingers. Yeah, right, right, right. right and then right. he, and then Bernard falls to the ground, and you know we see those streaks. You know, is you yeah, know, yeah, that, yeah. that he is wearing makeup. Yeah, I guess he was he was disguising himself, up, but obviously not very well since they killed him and they knew it was him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it didn't work too well. All right. Yeah, well, but they could have been playing. They could have been killing whoever Bernard was playing when he was dressed up like that. They may not have known it was Louis Bernard the spy. Yeah, they they, they wanted well, to kill Louis. <laughs> <laughs> Louis, Louis, whoa! Yeah. Anyway, but this brings us to the big intrigue. Louis pulls McKenna toward him and whispers something into his ear. The police arrive and Ben stands and goes to Joe and writes down what Bernard told him. Yeah. Okay, so the James Bond movie Octopussy opens after the title sequence with Agent 009 running away from the assassins. And he's got a knife in his back. Now, he doesn't leave as explicit a message as we see here in The Man Who Knew Too Much, but he has the Fabergé egg, which starts the intrigue in the movie. So both in Octopussy and in The Man Who Knew Too Much, a dying agent with a knife in his back sets the stage for the plot for the movie. Yeah. So, of course, the police are there now. and They're, they're going to go talk to Ben since they saw Ben talking to the guy and assisting him or trying to. And so they go over to Ben and Joe and they have to go to the police station for questioning. And Hank leaves to go back to the hotel with the woman, Mrs. Drayton. As Mr. Drayton assists the McKenna's to the station, just in case he's needed with potential language barrier. Now, we're talking about her maternal instincts. They're in a foreign country. They had a lot of stuff going on. A guy just got killed, and you're sending your kid off with a person you just met the day before. <laughs> I don't, that part I don't get. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Maternal instincts aren't aren't infallible, I guess. I guess. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um, in the 1934 version, uh, we should note, Louis Bernard is shot while dancing with Jill, the, yes. the wife, and tells Jill about a message hidden inside a brush in his room and gives her the key before he dies. It's it's very dramatic and a different way to get the message out. See, um, now, in that version, Bill, I, lo- I love that because that's more spy-like yeah. and stuff that's going on here. And she was the first one who knows that there's something going on in terms of a hidden message or whatever and and not him and it's i i like that version better <laughs> once again so if you're well, out well, there you got to because see maybe maybe, maybe dan maybe you're misogynistic just like the james bonds right? <laughs> no. because he told her to tell her husband to go get what was in the brush right? yeah well maybe he, he didn't, didn't want to endanger her, her. 
he said, have your, you know, a, you know, a, a lady would never be the one to go find this. The man has to do it. Yeah, but she's the one who's the rifle expert in the beginning, and that comes in pretty damn handy at the end of that movie. So she's the heroine. Yeah, I, but I, just thought, I just thought this kind of had a James Bond misogynistic feel yeah, to me. I, I don't know that. about that. Now, and they, they did clean that up in the 1956 version, but here in this one, I, that, I saw that, and it just made me laugh. I'm like, and they call Bond a misogynist? Uh, uh, I don't know. I think in the, in the 34 version, she was the woman who knew too much. <laughs> All right. Now, the brush is where the note is found by Mr. Lawrence, and it's more cryptic and mysterious. I kind of like that better. And the note in the 34 version was whopping. G. Barber make contact A period hall, March 21st. <laughs> That's a nice all- cryptic message. <laughs> and there was also the logo on it, too. Yeah. There's a drawing on it there. So what what do we got on the message here in the 56 version we're going to get to? Yeah. Yeah, let's let's talk about the 56 version here at this point because Bernard's death scene is classic Hitchcock in the 56. Less so than what we saw in the 34. That's true. In the 34, he's he's shot. He doesn't fall down like you see all the time when people get shot. He's just kind of like stunned. Yeah. But when we get to the 56 version, the shots, between, especially of Ben's face, yes, are right. classic Hitchcock. If you, if you study Hitchcock at all, you'll see those type of shots in yep. what you what you do there with the way they bring in Jimmy Stewart's face and the, the look on his face. Yep. And it lets you know, if you didn't know it was a Hitchcock movie, this scene in 1956 when Bernard dies lets you know this is a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. One quick question. Why were the local police chasing Bernard in the first place? On the one hand, you could say if Bernard was an agent, shouldn't the police have known? But then again, spies have a way of not confiding in the local authorities until they have to. So who knows? Yeah. yeah they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't trust. And he was, he was doing undercover. I mean, he was in a yeah. disguise. So this character may not be known to the police when he gets there. He may not want them to know who he is yet. Yeah. So the Drayton, who's going with them to the police station, he knows that Louis Bernard whispered something to Ben, and he saw him write something down. Are you going to show them what you wrote? He's asking him at the police station, and Jimmy Stewart's not going to answer that question, but they get called in to be questioned. The police know that they all met Louis Bernard, and they tell Ben that Louis Bernard was an agent of the Duzième Bureau, basically the French FBI and says that Bernard found out what he was sent to find out, which is why he was killed, and he told you what he discovered. Now Ben is getting angry. Again, his temper, which I thought, man, you're in a foreign country in in a lot of trouble. You should kind of, like, chill. Dial it back. Yeah, dial it back (laughs) a little. (laughs) But, But as we saw in the restaurant, Ben gets angry. He gets angry, yeah. So anyway, he's being questioned by the police, and there's a call for Ben. And while he's on the call, Drayton calls the hotel and he can't reach his wife. Now, this call is mysterious because it's not the concierge at the hotel, which is what they said. It's someone saying to McKenna that they have Hank. Yeah, this call thing is weird to me because how would they know that he was in there? Right? I don't know if that's the bad people they've been monitoring him. Well, I mean, why would this inspector who's trying to grill Ben, let him go take the phone call. Well, he didn't want to let him go take the phone call. He he insisted that he's going to go take the phone call. And he said, I'm going to go take that call. And he walked out of the room. 
No, that's true. That's so, true. So that was okay. So the guy, whoever's on the phone tells him, if you whisper even a word of what Louis Bernard said to you in the marketplace, your little boy will be in serious danger. Remember, say nothing. <laughs> Which in turn is very similar to the message the Lawrence's received in the 1934 version. Say nothing of what you found or you will never see your child again. Yeah. Something else about the 56 version. Okay, I'm the police in Morocco and I know this American has a message he wrote down that could resolve an international caper. Wouldn't I search this guy? Uh, <laughs> he's in my office. I, I think that's a good question, Bill. It's like, yeah. all right, take everything out of your pockets because I want that note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, uh, maybe a little more persuasive <laughs> means than yeah, that. But yeah, uh, yeah right. Oh, oh well. Yeah, absolutely. Now Joe wants to see this message, right? And now this is different in the in the thirty four movie because when she sees the message, she faints. Joe wants to see this message, and the message is. A man, a statesman, is going to be killed, assassinated in London very soon. Tell them in London to try Ambrose Chapel. And importantly, the note says C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. Now, remember, Bernard said Ambrose Chapel, then wrote down Chapel spelled that way. Right, right. And Joe wants to give the note to the American consulate and not getting involved anymore. She's just like... (laughs) She doesn't know about Hank yet. Yeah, yeah. So let's right. just well, yeah, right. so let's just wash our hands on this. Yeah. Also, here that's a travel tip from Hitchcock for uh, the for, for the vast audience in America that didn't do much foreign travel. Call the American consulate if you're in trouble, <laughs> and it works. You know, yeah. it's because that one uh, uh, local police official backs down <laughs> when, once yeah, that's they, true. here's the word of consulate. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. It's a good yeah. lesson. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so then, then when Ben and Joe get back to the hotel, they ask the clerk about Mrs. Drayton, and he says, or the bellman, and he says, he hasn't seen her. And then he also finds out that Mr. Drayton is checked out. Yeah, yeah, Ben's question. Now, remember, Hank went with Mrs. Drayton. Yeah. Oh, so now it's like, where's the kid? So Ben tells Joe that they have Hank, and it wasn't a coincidence that Bernard helped them on the bus. She was right about him. You know, <laughs> got to come clean on that. Yeah, you're right. And it turns out Bernard was looking for a suspicious married couple, but not Ben and Joe. He was looking for the Draytons and ended up looking at the wrong couple. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, Ben doesn't bother to tell Joe all this until he slipped her some sedatives. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, her, her doll. Let's make a feel better. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, anyway, so Ben explains the danger they are in with Hank. That these people have Hank, and his life is in danger. And this is why they cannot go to the police and tell them about what Bernard said. So we, as the audience, now know that, okay, he can't go to the police because they'll kill the kid if he goes to the police. So Ben suspects that since the Draytons were from London, and the incident is to take place in London, the assassination, that they left for London. And he knows that the Draytons have a private plane. So he thinks they're in London. And he thinks they took Hank to London. So Now, this is an amazing <laughs> job of sleuthing by Ben. Yeah. He, he finds out they have a private plane. How did he do that? Uh, when in this movie did he do that? Right? Or would he have had time to do that? 
He assumes they have the kid on the plate, and that they'd fly back home to London with the kid. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he did all that sleuthing, really, because (laughs) I'm looking at this thinking, wait a minute, your kid just got kidnapped in Morocco. You're making a leap of faith that they went to London. So you're going to leave this country where your kid got kidnapped and go to London on the hunch... (laughs) <laughs> that they're in which, which, right. which is probably kind of expensive to do like, like yeah <laughs> uh so i i that part well, he's a surgeon and she was a professional singer they've got a lot they got the money yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that part was a leap and it turns out he's right but to know that like you said tom sleuthing i don't know how much sleuthing he could have done however this is a really well used hitchcockian theme innocent people drawn into an international intrigue and mystery we saw it again in the 39 Steps, which came out the year after, North by Northwest in 1959. And we see it here, and we will see it again. And this is what's called the double pursuit, or this is kind of a variation of the double pursuit. The, the police in Marrakesh want to know what he knows, and so they're on him. And he cannot tell them because of Hank's life being in danger if he talks. He's an innocent man caught in the middle here. So he cannot get this traditional help. Plus the assassination planners are after him to keep quiet by kidnapping Hank. So they must control what Ben and Joe know through the threat of Hank's life. So again, there's this double pursuit that makes us side, of course, with the innocent people and feel for them that they cannot get the help that you would think normally you'd go get. So it's kind of, here's the trap they're in. And they set it up nicely. It's perfect. Right. So now we see this double pursuit a lot. And probably my favorite example of it is the 1996 first movie of Mission Impossible. Okay. I really like the way they do the double pursuit there. Although the one they do in 39 Steps is pretty darn good too. So Yeah, that's a great one. All right. So the McKenna's plan to leave for London. As Ben thinks, this chapel guy is our only hope after he drugs his wife up, like you said, Bill. <laughs> yeah, and I love that he he gives her enough to knock her out, and then he's got to get her woke up to go. Yeah. Now wake yeah. up! Yeah, we got to get going back. <laughs> you just drugged me. All right, so landing in London, they're met with press photographers who want to take pictures of Joe Conway, but they're also met by a man, an Inspector Eddington in the Criminal Investigation Department, who tells them that Mister Buchanan, who is a Special Branch Scotland Yard guy, wants to speak with them. Now, there's a lot of fans there. So apparently she's pretty famous because yeah, yeah, they're, they're screaming like for a, the Beatles. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it was established she had not been performing regularly for a while. So right. she still, you know, still has her fans, which was interesting. There is a suspicious woman at the fence with all the fans watching. She's yeah. in an orange coat. And she goes to telephone someone. Buchanan knows about the boy being kidnapped. And their agent knows of an assassination and Buchanan wants to stop it. And of course the double pursuit is still in play and McKenna can't talk. Yeah, and yeah. also yeah. the the Scotland Yard guy is amping up the tension because, okay, can the McKenna's trust him? I mean, right. they've never met this guy before. I mean, right. what's he, I mean, he says he wants to stop a, an assassination, but it's just, it's, it's just another way of just making things more tense and amping up the tension. Well, uh-huh. and he says he's from Scotland Yard, but I never saw a badge. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, who, and you know, you know, fake badges and everything else. You don't know who the hell the guy is, and and they cannot know for sure who he is. But he's in the he's in the office there, apparently at the airport. It looked like right, I mean, right, yeah, right. So he gets a call though while he's in Buchanan's office, and 
Now, remember, the woman in the orange coat that you mentioned, Bill, she's actually, we see her making this phone call, right? We see her, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Ben and Joe speak with Hank, so they know he's okay. So that's all right. And they ask Hank where he is, but the caller hangs up at that point. Buchanan's men are trying to trace this call. They say, hey, it's from a London exchange, call box West 1. So they know something now that they didn't know before. So this call was was useful and they have a similar thing in the 1934 version uh, with the lawrences getting a chance to speak with betty the kidnapped uh, daughter and they get hung up on they ask where she is and gibson traces the call to whopping Whopping. so this part made it into both movies you know the device did yeah yeah but yeah but i like the way they they were different a little bit in how they did the tracing because buchanan's men say it was made from london gibson calls up somebody and says this is g which i love right and trace that call and it was trace the call that just happened yeah yeah so this phone must have been tapped already right for them to be able to do that the cannons in the 34 movie oh the 34 movie okay all right all right so the mckenna's aren't going to cooperate of course because they again still can't talk because of the double pursuit buchanan gives ben a, a number he writes out a number he says hey in case you change your mind here Here's the number. This will get through to me. So they go check in their hotel. This will find me. Call this number and it will find me. That's right. Yeah, because I think later that's how it plays out. I think they they, they call it and they can't get him right away. Right. Right. Yeah. This number will find me. It's more like an answering service than a direct number. (laughs) So they check in their hotel and Ben grabs a phone book and he's looking up Ambrose Chapel. And again, that's with the CHA. P-P-E-L-L. Two right. L's, yeah. Right. Two L's at the end. Because that's, that's, that's how he wrote it down yeah. after speaking to Bernard. Yeah, so so he's looking in the phone book, and he finds a listing for Ambrose Chapel, and he calls, and he says he'll come over. Meanwhile, Joe's friends show up at the hotel, and apparently they booked the hotel for them, so they knew she was there, and they're all showing up to have a party, apparently. Ben excuses himself, and he goes to the address for Ambrose Chapel, as he's walking down the street, he hears footsteps behind him. Now, that was actually shot there in yeah. London, and that street corner that he got out of the cab, you could still see the Ambrose Chapel, as he's going to discover in a moment, is a taxidermist that actually was a taxidermist in real life, and a taxidermist who provided stuffed animals to Hollywood films. So. The interior and the exterior of that was actual real. It's no longer there, but that was a real place. So Hitchcock was on location there. That was pretty cool. Also, so, also real quick, one of uh, Joe's friends was played by the lovely Carolyn Jones. Yes. Oh, it was okay. like very, you know, she would have been 25, 26 oh. when this was filmed, later playing Morticia on The Addams Family. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. She al- but she also got an Academy Award nomination a couple of years later for a small role. I for- I'm sorry, I forget the film. But uh, yeah, I mean, she was a great actress, died way too young. She yeah. died early 50s, in her early 50s, sometime in the early 1980s. So. Wow. Uh, but yeah, just, uh, just a noteworthy, uh, person. She doesn't get much to do here, but, uh, I just thought I'd give a plug for her. Yeah. yeah, yeah and when when she comes in, you know, that whole group comes in the hotel, it just adds to the chaos of the scene. And when I, I'm looking at her going like, who is that? Yeah, yeah. I know who that is, but I was so used to her as Morticia. 
with the long dark hair. <laughs> I mean, here she's. I think it was blonde or red. I can't remember. She, she. You're right. One or the other. And she had yeah. been in the House of Wax a year or two before this. Oh, okay. Famous 3D movie with uh, yeah. Vincent Price and Charles Bronson. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So he's walking down the street and he's hearing these footsteps behind him, which, of course, we're thinking, oh, my God, this is adding to more suspense. That's really a nice Hitchcockian touch there. It adds, again, more suspense to the scene. And he sees a man approaching from behind. He kind of stops on the corner to wait for who to see who this guy is. And the guy looks at him and passes him up. And he goes into this Ambrose Chapel taxidermist. <laughs> Great music. Adds to the unknown here as Ben walks down this alleyway towards the entrance to Ambrose Chapel's place. So, great lighting, too. All really nicely well done with the sun, the shadows, and everything else. Beautiful. Really good. There's there's a nice twist in the 1934 version where Lawrence and a friend, Clive, have to find a dentist, which oh, is a death yeah. morning scene. So... Uh, <laughs> That's a great scene in the thirty-four movie. Yeah. Yeah. How do they how do they catch up to them? Different different versions of how they actually do that. Mm-hmm. And the note we had talked about earlier had them finding G. Barber. He was a dentist, and in that movie, it, in the thirty-four movie, it was a really uncomfortable scene as they're sitting there and very. his friend goes in and yeah. gets his tooth yanked out. Again, stuff. very tense. And again, a lot of parts of the thirty-four movie I like, but here in the fifty-six version, this is a macabre scene, really inside this confined taxidermist workroom with stuffed oh, yeah. birds and lions and other treated animals here that, that, are, that you, are there. You have all these dead animals. Yeah. And, of course, a few years later with Psycho, we'd get another thing about taxidermy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now, Dan, really you, called the, you called this scene macabre. And I, I actually thought it was a humorous scene. Well, in a dark humor sort of way. I mean, mean, it's it's because it's a case of mistaken identity. Ben had taken, you know, had made the wrong deduction. The Ambrose Chapel guy is kind of funny and kind of, you know, sort of. He he reminds me kind of like Leo G. Carroll had two main kind of characters, and one was kind of fumbling and bumbling, and this guy is sort of like you know, Leo G. Carroll was a Hitchcock semi regular. Yeah. And so, like, that guy is sort of like the fumbling, bumbling type Leo G. Carroll uh, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this guy, Ambrose Chapel comes out. He's 71, and he says, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. And he calls out his son, who's also named Ambrose. And here Ben's questioning him, and, of course, Ben loses his temper again. And he's grabbing him like, where's my boy? I'll pay you anything. Whatever. Give me him. And he said, I didn't know a word that Bernard told him. So the young Ambrose is getting worried. <laughs> he tells his father to call the police. Well, that's the part that's kind of funny. What the older Ambrose is walking around with the swordfish and the the swordfish. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you could and you could have done like a film short done by the Ambrose Chapel uh, point yeah. of view. Like here's this here's this angry guy. Yeah. Well, I'm just doing my taxidermy, Mister. Yeah. Um, I mean, not not a feature length movie, but like you know. A, 10 minutes short by yeah. kind of amusing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's why I said to me it was it was a funny scene. Yeah. Now the other, the other thing here is that the man who Bernard thought was part of the couple he was suspicious about, the Draytons, mm-hmm. finds that he's he's suspicious of the wrong Ambrose. Yeah. So right, so Ben here he finds he's really suspicious of this Ambrose Chapel. He's he's got it wrong. And it's another case of mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. Remember in the 39 steps, Hanny mistakes Professor Jordan as a friend. Yeah. 
Hitchcock seems to like this theme. Yeah, yeah. So and there's this mistaken identity stuff here. Yeah, again. So Ben here is angry. He grabs young Ambrose. He wants the information. The rest start to grab Ben. And the scene is tense. <laughs> and the stuffed animals are being jostled all over the place. And the elder Ambrose is grabbing that swordfish, like I said. I like that part because the swordfish is going past his head. It's like, oh. And it looks like he, it looks like the swordfish is going to attack. That part was brilliant, I thought. I like that a lot. That was kind of cool. So. Let's talk real uh, real quick about some some symbolism. Ben wrestles free and escapes as there is a close-up on a stuffed lion's head. And that <laughs> okay. is supposed to be symbolic because lions symbolize majesty, courage, strength, protection, family, and wisdom. England, of course, made use of lions in symbolism as well. Yeah, yeah. And, these, and these are traits Ben displays. I mean... You know, Ben's not a professional. Ben's a doctor and he's like, but he's taken the lead. You know, I mean, Joe may have had more, more suspicion earlier, but, but Ben's, you know, he's risking his life. Yeah. He's taking the risks. Yeah. And, and, and so anyone who's a father can sympathize with Ben in this situation, because I think most fathers, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, would I do that? I'd like to think I would if I were in that situation. Yeah, it'd be frightening for the average person to be in that situation, for sure. Absolutely. So anyway, he, he realizes, hey, he's in the wrong place. He gets the heck out of there and escapes. And back to the hotel, there's another revelation. One of Joe's friends asks, what's become of Ben? He's been gone for over an hour. Gone to see that man. What is it, church or something, he says? No, she says. Then a light bulb goes off in Joe's head as she says chapel. Wait a minute, she's thinking. It's not a man. It's a place. So back to the phone book. <laughs> They look up Ambrose Chapel, C-H-A-P-E-L, this time. <laughs> and it's yeah. listed at 17 Ambrose Street, West 2. Ah, so there so you go. We get the course correction here. Yeah. We had the, we had it wrong, or Ben had it wrong, and now we're getting the course correction. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, I think screenwriters would call that a plot point. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, because the, the story takes a turn at with that plot point. Yeah. So Joe excuses herself from her friends again, and she leaves on her own <laughs> to head to the chapel. And at the hotel, Ben returns to find out that Joe went to Ambrose Chapel, C-H-A-P-E-L, and Joe calls as he's leaving. So Ben is leaving too, leaving all the friends in the hotel once again. And she's waiting outside the chapel as we see inside that Mrs. Drayton is putting up hymn numbers. Ooh, now we realize for the first time She's at the right place. Then she walks in the room with Hank and that woman we see, we saw before in the orange coat at the airport. She's playing checkers with Hank locked in this room. So Mrs. Drayton enters another room where we see Mr. Drayton and another man, the man we saw in Marrakesh who knocked on the door, <laughs> that tall, skinny, face-pocked man who was looking for Mr. Montgomery and who Bernard somehow knew. So this guy is back yeah reggie nodler back again yeah it, uh, would it would have been nice if hitchcock would have given him a name <laughs> so we could say instead of saying that guy yeah that's but, true he didn't uh, have a name <laughs> the pockmark guy um yeah. <laughs> kind of like sorry reggie yeah uh, <laughs> so speaking of that here the pockface man guy is putting on a shoulder holster and a gun as he gets two tickets to albert hall Mr. Drayton is playing the music that will be played tonight at Albert Hall and points out the moment that the assassin will shoot the statesman when the cymbals crash. 
that will drown out the sound of his shot. Now, Mr. Drayton is dressed as a, a deacon or a priest or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, right. So a religious figure of some sort, depending on which denomination they, they don't specify. No. And they're in this (laughs) chapel. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. Right. You know, in the 34 version, they were uh, playing the music for Ramon the assassin, except the assassin here does not th- know the music very well. Although I suppose the uh, demonstration with the record player is a way of educating the audience because they tease it in the titles. Yes. You know, it's yes. like with the, because the last thing in the titles is the symbol crash. And then you have that thing that says yeah. story of a, how a symbol crash of the symbols affected American yeah. family, whatever. Yes, exactly. So it's like, we're now bringing that back with uh, Drayton playing the record for a pockmarked guy. Yeah. I hate that. I'm sorry, Reggie. I'm sorry. Wherever you are. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought in the 56 version, it's like a little late to be telling this guy when he's going to be firing the shot. Right. It's like, <laughs> and, and you don't hear the music ahead of it. You just hear that part. It's like, when does that part happen? <laughs> well, well, well also nitpicking, you know, like when, uh, when the assassin like to have a rifle, I yeah, mean, wouldn't like that a, be a, hand, better weapon? a handgun from that distance is kind of like, that's a little dicey, but yeah, yeah. anyway, it, it, yeah. You don't think you don't think about that till after the movie. Or a suppressor, a suppressor would be good, <laughs> right? And and to sneak a gun into a performance like that—that's that—that's a good point. Yeah, as, as soon as I was done saying it, and I heard you were speaking, I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah." That's I, I liked also in the 1934 version that Abbott tells the assassin to tell Mrs. Lawrence, who they will assume will be at Albert Hall, that. Her husband and daughter will be leaving for a long journey, then quote Shakespeare, from which no traveler returns. <laughs> that was that was direct. Now, that really was a nice add-on in this scene, except that the real Shakespeare quote from is from Hamlet, and it's Hamlet talking. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. After he sees his father's ghost here, it is clear that Hamlet is contemplating suicide and its consequences. So, here, wait, wait, it's this like, guy's an assassin. Well, well you know, well, <laughs> well, you know, probably what what in real life would probably happen was uh, John Michael Hayes was in such a hurry to get six pages on the next play, and he <laughs> yeah, didn't have yeah. he didn't have time to look up the full quote. Yeah, from here's the full quote. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. Anyway, this is like Bond villains and their henchmen being bad shots all the time. I mean, you know, he, he doesn't have a silencer, doesn't have a rifle. He, you know, it's like. They're bad shots when it counts. Like, when, you know, when it's showing off, they can, like, you know, shoot a wing off a fly. But, uh, you yeah. know, when it actually comes time to. I mean, you're matters. an assassin. Make the investment. You can shoot them at any time. You know, whatever. Get a silencer. Get a nice rifle. Whatever. Whatever you need. Get the right equipment. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Much like the 34 version, as Mr. Drayton dressing as a minister now. He tells the assassin because of the symbol crash when you shoot that, hey, no one's going to know. Yeah, the assassin said, except for one. Yeah, right, the guy he shot. Okay, all right. Well, he yeah, well, he, see, he doesn't, doesn't need a silencer. He's shooting at the symbol crash. Yeah, yeah. That, no one will hear him. The gun is smaller without a silencer, easier to conceal. I guess that's the logic. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, John Michael Hayes is not around to uh, for him for, for us <laughs> to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> And I did, I did like the line, except for one is in both movies. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, I think that's really good. No one will know except, except for one, one, the guy I shot. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. 
Yeah, and it's kind of clear that there's only time for one shot. And Miss Benson, yes. the woman in the orange coat, is going to accompany him to Albert Hall as she will lend respectability if that's possible. <laughs> like that, right, right. Because right. that guy doesn't look too respectable. <laughs> in fact, I don't Here remember are, if there's guy. a specific line saying there's only time for one shot, but no. it's definitely it's definitely heavily implied, if, yes. if not yeah. explicitly said. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so it's kind of neat that she's going to accompany him because she actually knows music because she was the organist in the chapel and so on. So I kind of like that, that she's actually able to read music and she's following along and she knows when the cymbal thing is going to come up. And he doesn't really, having listened to the record a couple of times. <laughs> so yeah. I like that part. Now, this has to be the inspiration for the opera scene in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Okay. Right? There they've got the rifles. And the shooting happens on the climactic ending note of Nessun Dorma. No one's going to hear it, especially in that case. Ilsa has that huge silencer on her gun. Yeah. How she gets it in there, I have no clue. But um, but this had to be the inspiration for that scene in Rogue Nation. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how many similar. movies influence other movies. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Yeah. so we see Ben arrive now outside the chapel, and he meets up with Joe. And again, they decide... Not to get help from the police. Let's take a crack at this alone, he says. <laughs> okay. Of course. <laughs> it's yeah. only Hank's life. There's an idea. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, don't no, darling. I got this. I'll, I'll take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> so they walk into the crowded chapel, and they try to stay unseen in the back. And the congregation is singing, as they do. And Ben begins to sing as well. And he sings... This is just another wild goose chase. <laughs> and you're not supposed to sing, remember? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. But later he sings, look who's coming down the aisle, and it's Mrs. Drayton. They try to hide behind a narrow post, and she sees them and tells Mr. Drayton, dressed as the minister at the podium, she tells him with her eyes that, hey, look at this. And so he knows. Yeah, All right. It's kind of like in the 34 version, right, Bill? Yes, in the 34 version, Mr. Lawrence and Clive are in the chapel and they mm -hmm. send out signals to each other. And some would say the scenario in the 34 version is actually scarier. But yeah, I think it is scary. There you go. I, I agree. I agree. And I, agree. I really love this part of the story in both versions. The fact that they're covering up, their, they're having a conversation by singing to the tune the congregation is singing. Yeah. But they can have a conversation, yeah. and it's likely people aren't going to notice they're using different words for the same tune. I, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, except Joe still sings a little loudly the first time. Well, Because, <laughs> you know, she's a singer. singer. <laughs> yes. All right. Now, the minister here is giving a homily on adversity. Hmm. Okay, I like that. Adversity, of course, is a difficult situation or condition, misfortune or tragedy. So it's kind of interesting that he picks that word for this homily, for this section, right? And that's exactly what's going on here in this entire story. That's what this is all about. So this is actually a brilliant piece to put in here. It's a great card to play right in this spot. Adversity. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> he knows they're there. All this stuff is going on. Nice. So Ben gives Joe Buchanan's number and says, hey, go out and call him. We have to remember that's the number, this number will find me. Yeah, yeah, he finally decides to get some help. <laughs> I love it. And so he's sure Hank is in this chapel as well. He, he, makes he is a lot so of good at sleuthing. He, he, he was, he's able to figure out that they would have taken Hank to London. Yeah. He's able to figure out that Hank's probably in this building. Yeah, he's good. 
It, it was all those years of uh, working on Anthony Mann-directed uh, Westerns. Uh, he had those <laughs> abilities, I guess. Um, anyway, in the 1934 version, Lawrence uh, tells Clive to call Jill and tell her to go to Albert Hall. Yes. So Albert Hall again. Yes, yeah. right. Albert Hall's a move, right? Nice. And Mr. Drayton, he's the minister. Again, as the minister, he sees what's happening, and he tells the congregation to go home now and reflect. Because he's like, I got to get these people out of here because we have we got a problem. So he whispers to Mrs. Drayton and the woman in orange. And now Ben sits alone in the chapel at the back and yells, where's my boy? He screams out for Hank and Hank hears and responds. And Ben fights his way to try to get up the stairs. and But he gets knocked out by a big guy. <laughs> we don't know who he is either. So Joe has no luck getting Buchanan, as you said, Bill. Because- couldn't find him. We couldn't find him because he's on his way to Albert Hall. But he's busy. <laughs> he's got things to do. But that number is supposed to find him. Yeah. Well, it eventually does. Yeah, but Special <laughs> Branch will send police to the chapel. And, of course, they arrive. Everyone's gone. The doors are locked. They doubt Joe's story. And they can't break in because they need a search warrant to do that. And that takes a time. search warrant? Imagine that. <laughs> I'm sorry. After, you know, in recent decades here in America with all these uh, yeah. police shows, he plays by his own rules. Search yeah. warrant, what's that? You know, it's just sorry. Yeah, these guys are like, <laughs> It's no, amusing to see policemen actually follow rules. Yeah, there's nothing <laughs> we can do, actually. In, yeah. in the movies, not in real life. In re- in yeah, real, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And well, in the 34 I mean, version, there was a similar, <laughs> a similar scene in the 34 version where where they thought that he was just making everything up and, and, and so that he was the problem at the chapel, not not the, 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 there were all these people in there and stuff, that he was lying. So the police didn't believe him in the 34 version either. So uh, here, the police are going, eh, nah, Joe, you know, there's nothing here. We're leaving. <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, so now she wants to head to Albert Hall. And meanwhile, Drayton and all have left by car with Hank, and they're leaving Ben in the locked chapel. Okay, question. Uh, ben finally comes to, well, when, where, I mean, in the chapel, I guess. But uh, yeah. what did Drayton and the rest think? Why didn't they tie Ben up and gag him so he would not be able to get out? Because he, like, yeah, granted, the doors are locked, but he eventually, you know, can climb a rope and get yeah, out. Yeah, the- smash a window, do something. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Well, but that's, I mean, so many Bond movies have this where Bond escapes. It's like instead of getting rid of him or whatever, you know, where we always say about the Bond villains, just shoot them. Yeah. You know, maybe they didn't want to kill these quote unquote innocent people. Which, but- which, which really quick, one of the first examples of that, bringing that up yeah. was the Beverly Hillbillies. Because Jethro comes home, tells Jed Clampett about the plot of Goldfinger and Jed says, well, I didn't just shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gang's been around since 1965. Yes. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but it's still true. Yeah. And here it would have been, tr- yeah. it would have been true. You At know, least incapacitate him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you had said before, Dan, you know, tie him up or something. So yeah. then we see Drayton and all of these people arrive at this embassy. Now, it, it's really a clever shot because I, I went back and looked at it a couple of times. You don't see it starts with A-O and it looks like the half of the letter S and then you see embassy. So you don't know what it's an embassy for. So they're not yes, seeing themselves that, in any political trouble by saying they're people from this country. That was that was obviously very deliberate. Yes. And there were other things in the 60, during the 60s. So the FBI... A, which a, a show that I have a website devoted to. They had a lot of espionage um, episodes early. And what they would do is like, 
you could tell it's supposed to be a Soviet block embassy, but like, oh, there just happens to be a lot of leaves in front of the sign. So all you see is embassy. You can't see the name of the country. <laughs> so so they, they might have gotten that idea from this movie. Yeah. What is the name of that website? Uh, the FBI episode guy. Okay. There Great. you go. Okay. Yeah. So that's cool. So, so anyway, we see that, you know, Drayton and everybody's going to go to the embassy to meet these accomplices. And, you know, is Ben trapped? Nope. He's climbing the bell rope up to the tower yeah. and it's ringing cr- like crazy. It's really hard work for him. How about smashing a window to get out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I know. How hard would that be? Yeah, hey, it's another Hitchcock trope, right? Climbing a bell tower, Vertigo, whatever. <laughs> and, and we have to remember, Vertigo happened after this. Yeah. So right. is yeah. was this scene of him going up the bell tower and everything, ringing and everything, kind of a yeah. foretelling in Hitchcock's mind of let me take that idea further with Vertigo. Sure. Yeah. So Joe gets the Albert Hall, and she's looking around, and the assassin sees her, walks up to her, and says. You have a very nice little boy. His safety oh. depends on you tonight. <laughs> po- Pockmark guy establishing his menace. Yeah. Can <laughs> you imagine being a parent and having somebody walk up to you yeah. and something you're not exactly sure what's going on. You know somebody's got your kid. You don't and know so, everything that's happening and have that line said to you. And as some and looked as menacing as he did. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, he, this is, this, this is not like, you know, a guy with smooth skin and, you know, normal yeah. looks. It's like, you know, really sinister looking guy. and says that line and <laughs> looks you right in the eye. That yeah. not in the pit of your stomach has to just be huge when you hear that. Yeah. But, you know, the 34 version, actually, I kind of thought it was a more powerful scene when the assassin walks up to the mother and gives her the daughter's little pin that she had purchased for her in Switzerland at the shooting event. And so there's like, here, look at that. You know what? We got your daughter and without any words, boom. That's true. Uh, that yeah, was I, powerful. I think it was I powerful. Yeah. I thought it was powerful in both versions. I thought, I thought that was really well done the way they, in both of them keep yeah. put that. Okay, lady, now's the time. Yeah. So anyway, Joe does find Buchanan. He's at Albert Hall. And he's there. And so she sees the assassin in his box above. And then she scans around and sees the statesman's box, the target of the assassin. Oh, yeah. And the the woman with the assassin can read the music and has the sheet music with her following along so she could tell the assassin when the symbols will clay. That was good. He, He doesn't know the music. That's a good touch, you know. As in the 1934 version, I don't think he had had this help, and also he did not know the music. That's right. They had to play it for him on the on the with yeah, the record. Here, right here they did. You know. Yeah. And again, we're here using a pistol with no suppressor. Yeah, yeah, Even yeah. a long-barreled one from a pretty good distance doesn't seem to be a great plan here. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's supposed to be a good shot, but whatever. Yeah. Now, if the music's playing, we know what's going to happen when they get to the symbols. Now, we probably don't know the music that well. Uh-huh. So we hear, there's points in time where the timpani build up and stuff like, oh, is this it? And it's not quite there yet. And then we get a quick shot of the conductor and then the symbolist sheet music that says symbols on it. Yeah, and the whole this whole thing has no dialogue. It's like 12 minutes of no dialogue. And it's just all the music going on, the tension being built up in the building, and you're looking around thinking, wow, what's going to happen? And it's sort of like Mission Impossible when Ethan Hunt is trying to lower himself into the room with the computer to copy the knock lists and so on. So, sometimes no dialogue is intriguing and builds more tension 
than dialogue. And it does here. In the mentalfloss.com article, it confirmed this, saying that Hitchcock was, quote, suspicious of the spoken word. <laughs> I, I like that. Well, and I agree that it's a excellent use of not having dialogue. You know, at one point in this sequence, the camera is panning the sheet music. And that's, you know, that's part of, you know, amping up the drama. I mean, it just, it all really, really works. And I think the editor was George Tomasani. I'm not sure the, I may be getting the, the name wrong, but he was like one of, you know, he worked on a lot of Hitchcock movies. So. But yeah, it was, it was really, really good. And, you know, everything's set up for us. It's all done visually mm-hmm. and just, you know, it's, it's really great. And of course, you know, this is probably a good time to uh, uh, mention um, Bernard Herman, who by the mid fifties had become Hitchcock's go-to guy for scores. And, you know, he's, he's here and you know, we see him as the conductor. Uh, we, we briefly see a sign that says, you know, London Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Bernard Herman, but their collaboration Hitchcock's and Herman's came to a sad end in the sense that they had a pretty violent quarrel about the music for torn curtain. But up until then they, you know, it was like one of the great director composer collaborations in the movie. Lord Gabriel Fowler wrote an article on backlots.net, which goes into more detail on the scene. Uh, one thing she pointed out, she says that the music gives the scene a feel of silent movie mm. where the music plays in the background while the audience follows the movie. Again, we talked about how the camera pans on the sheet music yeah. and it's, you know, again, all of this is just building upon building and building. It's just, it's just a wonderful sequence. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked I, it too. I think Yeah, I also great. like this is the same they use the same music here in both versions. So That's right. The yeah, score is yeah. the same in this scene in the 34 and the 56 versions. Yeah. So here we see the assassin, it's time. He gets up and he's hiding behind a curtain. And now Ben arrives and Joe who's still there without a ticket, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> is pointing out the statesman's box and where the assassin's box is. So we see the symbols being reached for and lifted. It's a great shot because it, again, raises the tension even more for us because this is going to happen soon. And And in this 1956 version, the symbols were big and shiny, where in the 1934 version, I thought they're pretty small and they weren't shiny at all. It was Mm. the difference between the symbols they used in these two versions was interesting to me because the crashing of the symbols is the whole plot for the scene and having them big and shiny really emphasized that point in the 56 version. So I think it, I think it worked better in the, in this version. And and by using them at the end of the main titles that like establishes, you know, memory for the audience. Mm -hmm. So then when we get to the climactic scene and see, like you said, the big shiny symbols, like, you know, we've already heard them once and it's like, boy, it's like, yeah, you could see how that could easily hide the sound of a gunshot. Yeah. Yeah. So you see the, the assassin now he's, you see the gun barrel coming out from behind the curtain and that's a nice shot because we're thinking, okay, this is imminent. And Joe's seeing this somehow (laughs) that's pretty good. And she screams. And a shot is fired. And the statesman, the prime minister, holds his arm. 
as Ben bursts into the assassin's box and really prevents a second shot from potentially even happening. As the assassin tries to escape, of course, he jumps on the railing and he falls off and falls to his death down below. Kind of reminds you of John Wilkes Booth, of course, who assassinated President Lincoln, who jumped, but he survived. And I can't help thinking, but to think of that, but wow. In the 1934 version, the would-be assassin gets away by car and there's a final showdown with police and the Lawrences. In this version, they capture the woman who is with it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the- and I, I also, I also liked in the in the thirty four version of this, you had Jill screams, right, and you know which the scream dis, you know disrupts the the assassin. But I, li- I like the way they did that because in the earlier in the movie when they had the scene in the thirty four version when they had the scene when she's skeet shooting, yeah. it's the noise of the watch that makes the little alarm noise. That goes off when she's shooting and she misses. So she gets distracted here, there. Here, in, in, in this one, she, the scream by both Jill and Joe disrupts the assassin and the assassin misses. Yeah, yeah. Flesh wound. Yeah, so he only gets a flesh wound and he wants to thank Joe personally. And Buchanan, of course, he's there as well. And <laughs> where's Hank, of course, but... <laughs> yeah, Hank, oh, by the way, we're Hank. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- while this is happening at Albert Hall, the Draytons and Hank are at the embassy seeing the one there who ordered the assassination, as it turns out, apparently so he could benefit. And now he asked the host of reception for the prime minister, who he says he had hoped would not be able to attend. <laughs> <laughs> this man is evil. He's angry with the Draytons because they brought Hank to the embassy and he wants the boy killed so that he cannot say where he's been tonight. No connections to the embassy or to him. Well, also somewhere along the uh, post melee stuff, the when the when the British guys are talking, the Scotland Yard guys are talking about, oh, why can't they do this on their home yeah. turf instead of doing it right. here? So, like, apparently, you know, that implies. I mean, it's just a one line, but apparently, this country's a little unstable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like that line too. That was a great one. So. So here we're back and Joe and Ben are talking to Buchanan and Buchanan's telling them that whatever country the prime minister's from, again, we don't know, that these assassins were trying to eliminate one of their big shots. And that's what he says, Bill, like you just said, I wish they'd do that in their own country. But anyway, they know Hank is probably at the embassy. So again, how did they figure that out? (laughs) It's like knowing the Draytons took Hank to London. I mean, they figure out a lot of stuff. I, I, I guess it's like it's there's no other place he can be. I, you know, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? So Ben calls the prime minister and tells him that the lady who saved his life would like to speak with him and take up on his offer really to thank her. So they'll go to the embassy and the plan is that Joe will try to sing for them so that Hank could hear her. I love this plan. <laughs> That's a stretch, right? It's like okay. All well, right. and and also again, Hitchcock gives us you know gives the audience a little education. It's like okay, an embassy is like it's you know considered the same as the soil of a foreign country. You know, you True. can't just traipse in there. You gotta right. you know, which you know, another complicating factor. Yep. Uh, you know, for the story. Yeah. Yeah. So we're brought full circle here from hearing Quesarasara in the beginning of the movie, and now. 
in a moment at the end of the movie. Of course, they know at the embassy that she's Joe Conway, and they do ask her to sing, of course. Yeah. Ben encourages it. <laughs> ben, ben kind of encouraging it. And she yeah. does. And she sings the absolute longest version of Que Sera Sera <laughs> that you'd ever want to hear. And after that version, I never want to hear it again. I mean, <laughs> you know, Dan, you, you've mentioned that to me before, right? So, how long this was. So, I looked it up, I timed it. Yeah. Four minute and two second That's version. Oh my God. Oh my God. And then she's singing something else after that. Yeah. A but, two minute version yeah, is too long. We we can't quite make it out. We hear right. like a little whisper of it here and there. But yeah, yeah. the main but, thing you know, is that yeah. four minute. After it gets done, you hear the applause. Yeah. And then she starts into another song. But. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, she doesn't just, it's not like they just added lyrics. It was like, yeah. and then Syrah, Syrah, oh just, my yeah. God. Yeah. It went on quite a while and Hank, but you know, it does work because Hank does hear his mother singing, but he's locked in a room with Mrs. Drayton and Mrs. Drayton knowing that they want to kill the boy. She does not want that to happen. So she tells Hank, Whistle the song as loud as you could so that okay. But how does Mrs. Drayton know to ask Hank this? Because remember when we first talked about this song and pointed out that Hank was whistling it, how did she know all all this? She wasn't with the McKenna's the first time we hear the song and Hank whistle. So that's something to think about. Bernard was there, home. the Draytons weren't. Yeah, the Draytons weren't. Willing suspension of disbelief. Ah, ah. Yeah. Of course, Joe and Ben hear the whistling. So they hear, you know, Hank whistling. And Ben eventually sneaks out of the room, although he took his time. You know, it's like, oh, 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 and finds Ben in the room and he breaks in. Well, he knew it was a four and a minute song. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a long song. They won't kill Hank in between. I, 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 I got to have this hors d'oeuvre here first before I go <laughs> save Hank. Well, I also love when this whole scene, it's there's kind of like in a hall and the, the guy, the prime minister says, you know, set it up and, you know, quickly. And like almost instantly there's the seating there and the piano. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank God they didn't take time to show us setting up chairs. That's fine. Yeah. I'm good with that. <laughs> but now, of course, Mr. Drayton is on his way up to get Hank so that he could have him killed as per his instructions. So Mr. Drayton holds Ben and Hank at gunpoint because, of course, Hank and Ben couldn't escape because there's the guy, Mr. Drayton, with the gun, and he tries to use them as a way to get out of the building. That's his plan, kind of a shield or whatever, and he's descending these this flight of stairs, and he's got the gun in his pocket, and he's kind of holding it on them, and Ben pushes Mr. Drayton down the stairs, and boom, there you go. We have a very abrupt ending there. Now, I thought that was a little risky, position-wise, pushing... On Ben's part? Yeah, yeah, on Ben's part, pushing Mr. Drayton downstairs because he could have fired and hit Hank, really, or whatever. But anyway, it worked. He pushed him down the stairs, and there's a big commotion. And really, that's pretty much the end, right? Joe and Ben are walking now into their hotel room with the friends still there waiting for them. Well, they're all sleeping, yeah. 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 And Ben says, sorry we're so late. We had to pick up Hank. Now, oh. you, you call this an abrupt ending. I mean, this to me is possibly <laughs> the stupidest ending I've seen in a movie until Madeline and Matilda are in the car in no time to die at the end of it. Okay. <laughs> oh, for me, this is a sorry. very disappointing. <laughs> it's a very disappointing Hitchcock ending. It I mean, is. It, it is. It, 
It's like, and, okay, let's wrap this movie up right now. <laughs> well, but it's not that it's, it's not even just that. It's, just, it's like he felt like there was this loose end with the friends still in the hotel room. We've got to wrap that up. Yeah. I mean, it was like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, well, I hated the, it. It felt really clumsy to me. Yeah. The best thing I can say it. is that I it was maybe an attempt to end the movie on a humorous note. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all what you just said is absolutely correct. And a lot of it depends on Stuart's delivery of the line. It's like, well, sorry, we, we had to go yeah, and yeah. pick up Hank. And then you had that dramatic music which goes back to the main titles and goes mm. back to the Albert Hall sequence dun 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 da, 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 da. Yeah. and like we're out yeah but anyway but well one quick note about the 34 version there is a shootout at the police as the police tail the assassin to uh, the chapel and Mr. Lawrence is captured there yeah. with Betty the daughter and there's a shootout and a ro- rooftop chase of the daughter and assassin Mrs. Lawrence, you know, she was in the skeet shooting contest, grabs a rifle and shoots the assassin on the rooftop. Now that's, now that's a proactive heroine right there. Yeah. That's an ending. I thought it was more dramatic and more realistic than, Hey, we had to go pick up Hank, you know, whatever. You know, it's like, Hey, there's a big shootout and you, she's using the skill we saw in the beginning of that movie, the 34 version at the end to save her daughter. Oh, that's good. And I will add one quick note about the 56 ending. Okay, at least that kept the running time to two two hours and one minute, not like two hours and 45 minutes like, you know, yes. recent Bond movies have been. So yeah. you, got, you got that at least. Yeah. <laughs> and we got to remember the couple of spoofs that were made of the movie too, like Bill Murray's The Man Who Knew Too Little, and there were some others as well. All right, so we've looked at the 34 version. We looked at the 56 version. You have any last thoughts on these two movies, anybody? One quick one. They're both worth watching. Yeah. Uh, you can you can find the 34 version on YouTube, and uh, you can get uh, the 56 on Amazon Prime. You can probably get it other places. Both worth watching. Both interesting takes on a similar theme by a master filmmaker. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's a great reminder. If you like Hitchcock, you got to watch both. If you like spy movies, you got to watch both. They're both worth a view and i and i think it's worth watching both of them yeah all right and i think we're done so that's a wrap we want to thank bill koenig for both the suggestion to do a podcast on the man who knew too much and for joining us here today thanks again bill thanks guys for inviting me this has been dan silvestri and tom pizzato of spymovienavigator.com and our show cracking the code of spy movies Remember, please subscribe to our show right now. Hit that subscribe button. Check out our videos on our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. And if you'd like to join our Facebook group, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, please do so. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.